I'll never forget when I was, uh, my classmate who finished with me in high school was Oprah Winfrey in the class of East Nashville High, 71. And I was on her show uh, maybe 20 years ago. She had me on the show with some of the other class superlatives. And she said, when she came on air, Andre, you've done all these great things, but you were such a nerd. What what happened? I said, well, like all of us, Oprah Gale, we grow up. And uh, here's my wife out here to, to testify, testify I'm not a nerd anymore. And, uh, and here's all these other articles that show that I'm a man of fashion and style. So one time years ago, I had a chance to talk when I met when I said, you know, I was three out of 310 in the academic, you know, in the class. I mean, I was just below the salutatorian and you were number 10. And she says, yeah, but what's your bank account now? So. <laughs> <laughs>what is up fam i'm dr dale the author of how to raise a doctor wisdom from parents who did it the author of black men and white coast the author of the doctor doc children's series the author of premium mondays and the author of my newest book gotta make sure y'all get a copy of it a doctor's guide to self-publishing people always say dale how do you write so many books well i'll tell you how i do it right here in this one a doctor's guide to self-publishing so if you've got a story to tell get the book we'll put the links down below um, we give out a lot of free copies so we'll put the links down below or you can find on amazon once it's released at the time of this recording i haven't put it out yet but it is coming and you are listening to the black men and white coast podcast, the place where black clinicians have the platform to share their stories with listeners like you. So many great things going on in the world of black men and white coats. Um, in particular, we're starting to, we're starting to re-engage with a lot of partners to try to get these black men and white coast youth summits up and rolling again, post COVID. So we've got a lot of new partners. We're excited about that. Stay tuned. Look in the description below to get any information on updates for black men and white coats. Now, today is a very, very special treat. Very special treat. It's a it's um, a gentleman, a physician. Uh, I will consider him a legend, a legend in in, the, in medicine. Um, somebody who I've been trying to get on the podcast for a long time now, and I finally got him. Even though it's funny, we see each other every you know every now and then at conferences and such. But um, he's a very busy guy, and I finally got him. Um, not only is he a very busy guy, you're going to learn a lot about him, but. For those of you who are watching the video right now on YouTube, he is one of the best dressed physicians ever. One of the best dressed, but he is sharp. He is so sharp. Um, and none other than Dr. Andre Churchwell. Dr. Andre Churchwell, um, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Bill. Thank you so much. This is uh, something a long time coming, but I was, I've was i been excited about the opportunity to share and chat with you, man. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very excited to have you here. I'm, you know, I'm somewhat, somewhat giddy because... The you know people people kind of within the circles of the diversity world they 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 understand kind of what you've done in the field of um, medicine and kind of what you represent and such. But for those who who don't who aren't in there, we're going to explain it today. We're going to we're going to kind of get into that. Um, I'm not going to give too much more of your intro because I want us to kind of get into that in the actual interview process. But you know, I was reading your bio and reading uh, we, we were just discussing. I was reading um, a great article on you and you've just done so much over the course of your time. Um, as a physician, but even before a physician, you've just done so much. And um, I just want to, before I even get into that, I just want to say thank you for being a role model. It's kind of paving the way for, for those of us who are coming through. And you know, a lot of us are just trying to figure this thing out. And and you've been there, done that, and, and kind of showed us how to do it. So from the start, I'm going to say thank you for doing all that and making it possible for people like me to kind of be going through this whole medical journey right now. Well, man, I appreciate it. You know, the thing that I have learned from a lot of mentors, and, and you and I've talked about this, and it, I'm sure your books speak to this importantly. How do you find 
great mentors. What type of mentors do you need? I wrote an article a few years ago for the Texas Heart Institute Journal called Hearing Voices. And it was an article about great mentors in my life. The editor is a buddy of mine. He's just passed away, though, Herb Fred. And he called me and said, Andre, with his Texas accent, this is not a psychiatric journal about hearing voices. I said, no, Fred, you know that's not what it's about. It's about when we're about ready to do a procedure, about ready to make the wrong diagnosis or the implications of something that we probably did not read the signs correctly or the data correctly. We hear in our mind some of those great coaches, our great mentors. I hear Dr. Hurst, Willis Hurst, the great physician leader at Emory, who was my chair and, and one of my great mentors, ask me, Andre, that's you're going off the road. Or, or Joe Hardison, the chair of medicine at the VA in Atlanta and Decatur saying with his high pitched uh, draw, Andre, what'd you do that for? I mean, I can hear that in my head and I know to get back on the road. And, but, but you need all kinds of mentors. We need, I need a physician role model that can help me when I'm seeing something I've never seen before, like the pink orangutan. At my age, I've seen a lot of stuff, but there are a couple of things I've not seen. Who can I pick up the phone and call? I call Roma DeSanctis. Uh, I think Roman just turned 90. Uh, uh, the chair, ch uh, chair emeritus of cardiology at the Mass General Hospital was a great teacher of mine and still answers the phone on the first ring. Uh, if I'm having a problem about how to be an administrator, I used to call, I would call John Stone, the late John Stone or Dan Fetterman, who just passed away at Harvard, the Dean of Students. So you need all kinds. I have a life coach mentor was my dad. He was the best life coach. And, and these guys all live model lives, lives you could watch, you could learn from what they even decisions they made about what kind of car to buy. I mean, Dr. Hurst, you know, you think about him, he'd tell you what kind of stethoscope to get, and, and he could explain that. But he'd also tell you, why did I buy this little small Mercedes? Well, let me tell you about the miles per gallon and, and the light beams, uh, high beam when you're coming back on call from Decatur into Grady Hospital, how you can see clearer. I mean, just an amazing set of folks. Uh, and you have to kind of hold out for the best. They're out there. They're out there. Yeah. For sure. So, so um, you mentioned your dad being the best life coach mentor. Let's take it way back there. As we get, get in your story, people will understand why it's so important to take it back to your parents, because it's not just you as a doctor in the family. Now, we'll talk about this now, but you got so your parents did something right along this journey. Yeah. So what kind of what kind of man was your dad? And, and while, while you're going, I'm just going to close this so the, the online viewers can get a better view of me and get the shimmering going. But let's start by what kind of man sure, sure. Was, was your dad? So dad was a product of the, you know, the greatest generation. He was born in 1917 in Clifton, Tennessee, a little small town in West Tennessee, most notable for a lot of, uh, it was a ferry boat across the, for the Tennessee River that a lot of the Confederate Army would use to bring their cannons and stuff. And uh, dad's father, uh, Jesse Churchwell, was born there. And my grandfather was probably the first true generation out of slavery. His father, Isom, was the son of two enslaved Africans who were owned by a slave owner named John Churchwell. A lot of folks have the wrong mm -hmm. idea. This guy, Scott Irish, everybody sees enslaved Africans as part of some giant tower plantation. No, if you look at the literature, most enslaved Africans were uh, enslaved by owners who were not that wealthy. And for that matter, only uh, would own a few slaves, maybe four to seven would be probably an average. And so my great, praise the Lord, my great, great, great grandparents met uh, who were from Africa there on John Churchwell's farm and they uh, married and they, cre and they created Isom Churchwell, who was my great, great grandfather. 
dad comes from Clifton. He lands in Nashville. My grandfather loaded everybody up on a proverbial mule cart and drove the, his four kids uh, and my grandmother, uh, Johnny Churchill, to Nashville in the 20s. And dad uh, being influenced by his mom more than his father. His mother was a woman of culture who actually went to some, uh, a preparatory school, if you can imagine that at the time wow. in the 1920s. And she had a piano in the house and really inculcated in dad and his siblings the importance of learning, reading, music, all that. And dad just gulped, just gulped it up. And so he became just really enamored with music of all kinds and became this extreme bibliophile. He clearly be began to appreciate that the world uh, could be viewed through the portal of a book. You might be stuck in racist South North Nashville in 1928 at 10 years of age, but if you're 11 years, but if you've got a book that transports you to, to India uh, in the writings of Gandhi or whatever it might be, that offers you a window out of that, that cramped uh, racist confining world. And so as he finished Pearl High and then went to the army and came back on the GI Bill to Fisk, he landed at Fisk at the time that all the great Harlem Renaissance leaders were leading Fisk. Charles Johnson was the president, Aaron Douglas, who was the poet, one of the artist laureates of the Harlem Renaissance. One of the great poet laureates of Harlem Renaissance was the English professor and librarian, Arna Bontons. And they poured yeah. all this stuff in this mind of my dad. And he just- I'm, 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 I'm curious, was your dad- was your dad intimately engaged with those individuals? Or was he was, it more like he was. As a matter of fact, as we grew up, and he, be he became a reporter, the first African-American reporter on a paper in the Southeast part of the country, this Nashville Banner, an evening paper. He was. He went, every year he covered the Fisk graduation and would take my little knucklehead brothers and myself to the graduation to meet Arnold Von Thompson, to meet Aaron Douglas, and to be taken to the Carl Van Vetchen Art Gallery and to listen to... Von Thompson read poetry at graduation that he had written. So he, he was the, the, the brilliance of my father was he was, um, he, he understood that if, that if he showed you, that if he loved you enough and, 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 you, and, and you got that part, then you would understand that any message he was bringing to you in a way to inculcate special messages in your head would have some value. So the love brought, opened the doors of perception as Aldous Huxley would say, and it let us kind of take in these lessons of listening to Don Giovanni on Saturday mornings or, or listen to Louis Armstrong or listen to Marian Anderson or listening to Richard Tucker, the New York tenor for the Metropolitan Opera. And you do that cleaning the house on Saturday morning on your knees, waxing floors, and he'd be blasting his RCA uh, record player throughout the house. He'd play the original Showboat album with Paul Robeson. But more importantly, as you're doing this stuff, he would talk to you about it. And he made it interesting and he made it because it was coming from love. Messages were taken and received. And so he had a library in this little 2000 square foot home. It was the biggest room in the whole house. The only room with an air conditioner in the wall. And in the summers, he was brilliant. He said, you either go outside and cut all these yards, Andre, to help pay your tuition. Or I'll give you the same amount of money if you read this stack of books and write me a report. Well, that was an easy no brainer. Air conditioning. <laughs> in his room versus 99 degrees heat in Nashville, Tennessee in the summer with 100% humidity, that was a no brainer. So start reading Langston Hughes, start reading uh, Ernest Hemingway's Farewell in the Arms, uh, From Whom the Bell Tolls, reading uh, Aldous Huxley, uh, Thomas Huxley, uh, 
you know, all the great authors he had in this cramped little library. And it became something that we all felt were, was useful and enriching. And we began to understand how he viewed it, transported you out of that small world we were in. And my brothers picked this up from me. And, but along the way, we got interested in science and math. I love the humanities, but science and math was a great calling. And so I went into engineering school at Vanderbilt before I so, went to Um, So thinking back to this, I'm, I'm gonna rewind a little bit. So you, you know your family history very well. Sounds like, I mean, you you, you track it back to slavery. We did, we, we actually did this. My dad passed away in 2009 and he was born September 9th, 1917. So in September 9th, 2017, we held at Vanderbilt a centennial celebration of his history. And every one mm -hmm. of the children had to take decades of his life and do research. So my daughter and I got this straw to go back to Clifton and film the family cemetery, film the church that Isom Church were built with his hands. We didn't know any of this stuff. Went back oh, okay, to the so town. We didn't know, we learned all on a, all ad hoc as we did this. Went to the city, city seat there in Wayne County and pulled out documents that talked about Isom Church well and, and his role in the city. Okay. Okay. So I was, I, I had it wrong. I was going to ask if, I was going to ask if knowing your family history, if you felt as though that helped you succeed in life, you know, kind of knowing where you're from. It was really dad and mom and mom's from Bell Buckle, Tennessee. He met her as he came back to fish. She was a freshman at TSU and she was a woman of grit too. So she's raised by a woman, Viola Buckingham, four children, no husband dies of a hypertensive bleed. I think a health disparity, uh, Dale was in his early 20s and blood pressure was oh, wow. sky high, apparently. Died on the farm farming. And my grandmother then raises the kids, teaches them how to shoot guns, fish, hike, take care of animals, and uh, sends her daughter to Nashville to go to high school. There's only high school in the area is at Pearl. And this is in probably 1947 or something. Mama hitchhikes with a bag all the way to Nashville oh, to a boarding home that my grandmother knew the lady that owned the boarding home. So she's 16 years of age and makes her way on her own about 30 miles outside of Nashville. So once again, we're standing on the shoulders, as Newton would say, of giants. And because <laughs> we're standing on their shoulders, we can see further, do more. And and but the message that you're that that comes out of all this is that is the inculcation of reaching down and bringing people up on, from your journey. You know, you're not that special, but you are special enough to help the next person, the next student the next resident, the next uh, college student. And so that was, those were deeply felt and inculcated. So what type of, um, uh, beyond the reading, what type of child were you? Were you into sports? Were you active? Uh, well, we might as well get into your younger brothers as well. Yeah, guys, so I spent fight? a lot of time with my young brother. I was a fair, I mean, I, I think all of us uh, to a large extent, <laughs> if we're willing to admit it, are all uh, converted introverts. Uh, I think, as you probably were, you were very bookish. I was bookish. I played city. I played street ball. I played all the city sports. I've got the scars uh, from the cars and the wrecks and the glass in the street and being and the scars on the asphalt playing basketball with no strings on the rim. I got those scars, brother. But uh, but I was very much an introvert and uh, very much into dad's message of reading and study and my little brothers my I have younger brothers eight years junior that followed me in this in this journey of being an introvert uh, that becomes a functional extrovert i think we all become functional extroverts i think we all probably at some point in our lives had to be a, a quasi nerd if not a nerd 
I'll never forget when I was, uh, my classmate who finished with me in high school was Oprah Winfrey in the class of East Nashville High, 71. Oh, wow. And I was on her show uh, maybe 20 years ago. She had me on the show with some of the other class superlatives. And she said, when she came on air, Andre, you've done all these great things, but you were such a nerd. What, what happened? I said, well, like all of us, Oprah Gail, we grow up. And uh, here's my wife out here to, to testify, testify I'm not a nerd anymore. And, uh, and here's all these other articles that show that I'm a man of fashion and style. So, so, I, so, so that was probably, to be honest with you, that was a very useful thing to be very kind of closed and reading and committed to you know, coming in the house at five o'clock, no matter what I was doing out in the street, winning the ball games. And my little brother saw that and, uh, and dad just kind of supported that habit of study and inquiry. And uh, that got me rolling from East Nashville High to Vandy Engineering and then the Harvard Med School. Yeah. So what was your what was your superlative? Oh, uh, Oprah said, that means you were the nerd. You were voted the most dignified boy. I said, dignified, that sounds pretty good. No, nah, that means you're a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I think that sounds pretty good. Yeah, right? I tell her, I, when I, at one time years ago, I had a chance to talk when I met with her. I said, you know, I was three out of 310 in the academic, you know, in the class. I mean, I was just below the salutatorian and you were number 10. And she says, yeah, but what's your bank account now? So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not too many people are going to beat her, beat her there. So, um, so you go to Vanderbilt and, and this is going to be interesting here. Yeah. Um, you go to Vanderbilt, you go for engineering. So a couple, couple things. First of all, I'm curious to know why engineering. And then I want to hear about the, the racial isolation, the quote unquote invisible man that you, yeah, you talk no about. no question about it. You know, Vanderbilt at this time is really kind of a, a up and coming national university. But like many of the Southern privates at that time, they were considered the Southern Ivies, very sequestered, very kind of closeted, mostly were proving grounds or finishing schools for the rich white elite from the prep schools of the South. And when the doors cracked open because of integration, they began, letting folks in. And I think it was four people in my whole class in the engineering school of maybe 450 in that entering class. It's not so very few of us. And uh, I went there because I love the intersection of science and math. And it turns out the emerging field of biomedical engineering was just coming on board. And Vanderbilt had a major in that where you could learn about how to apply engineering and math principles to solving health problems, whether it be through artificial kidneys, artificial hearts, or simulating uh, physiologic functions with mathematical equations. I really like that stuff. But I also was akin to wanting to connect with people. So I didn't go totally the PhD route. I did go to the medical school route. But, but walking that campus at the time, it was uh, literally, um, if I didn't have my father and that nurturing cave, I called it back on 77 North 9th Street in East Nashville to go to from the bus transfers back home, I think the Lord probably gave me a break. If I had lived on campus, I may have had the same fate as a number of my other brothers who felt so isolated there that they left Vanderbilt and they started all over. But I would come home every night to the nurturing cave and I would get the messages from my parents, particularly dad, who would not let you fail. He would say, yeah, you made a C on the ah, but you've made A's before, Andre. You're, you're going to make an A the next time. He would not let you fail. And he did that for all of us in, in, in the most uh, sweet, loving uh, forceful, but impactful way. So that you finally believed what he was telling you. And in fact, you quit failing and you start making nothing but A's at Vanderbilt and you finish magna cum laude. And he said, I knew this was going to be the case. And you win the program award for the whole biomedical engineering department graduating class 
because of your research was above and beyond what everybody else could do. And then you land at Harvard Med School. And he continues that message. He even visits me at Harvard Med School in my first year. And I'm living in this dorm called Vanderbilt Hall, this non-air conditioned dorm built by the Vanderbilt family, oddly enough, in the 1920s. And he visits me just to check on me and bring this big care package for mama with all her fried chicken in there and the saran wraps and stuff. And while I'm in class, he refuses to sleep. And there's only one bed. There's only a floor with a mat. He sleeps on the floor. He says, you got to go to class tomorrow. And so this is the kind of man that, uh, that, that trained me that once again, that model life. So a statement like that, how about what impact does a statement like that have on a, on a, on a very susceptible young man that's trying to learn how to be a father, you know, how to be a, a, a mentor for older kids. No, you need to get, get your rest because you have to be sharp in class. I'll sleep on the floor. How about that one? That's powerful. That's very powerful. I'm taking, you can see in the pictures behind me. My, my I noticed kiddo, that. So, I noticed so I'm ta- that. I'm, I'm taking it all in. The, the, I something I took that. in, you said, yeah. um, use a combination of words. He talks to you in a sweet but forceful way. So how, how do you how do you keep the, the force of a father, but be sweet and loving at the same time? Absolutely. I, I think the key is there are some important lessons you got to impart. Some of them are hard. Some of them are difficult and some require to be repeated and repeated. But boy, if the if the if the if the portal, if, if the mouthpiece, if the, if the person from which these lessons are emanating can do it all covered in love. All covered in sweetness and, and forgiveness and and. Uh, Boy, it'll it's going to be delivered. It's going to be received, and we need more of that that type of parenting and mentoring uh, in our in all of our communities. You know, in, in our communities, uh, he they were unique. I, I see this as more alchemy than chemistry, to be honest with you, Dale. I, I think the magic of my, the church world parents. It's hard to it's hard to uh, absolutely repeat uh, or re-experiment with something like that. But boy, you can have some great effects if you take some of these parts of these lessons and you make them part of your own uh, upbringing of your own kids or the kids that you mentor and you know that availability and the sense of uh, humility that comes out of all this. Yeah. I love it. So um, tell me, why did you choose Harvard Medical School? Um, you know, you're mentioning HBCUs with your parents. I noticed you you, you chose right. Vanderbilt and Harvard. Right, my father, mom, TSU, my brother, TSU, and uh, my sister, TSU. You know, I think it was, uh, I, my feeling was I'd been in Nashville all my life, and I wanted to get out of Nashville. And um, I was looking at a potential thought process, a career in physician scientist research and biomedical engineering tied to medicine. I did some research, and I knew Harvard had the HST program, which is the Health Sciences Technology Program. They do at MIT. I didn't want to necessarily have to go that route because at the time you had to get a PhD, but you could go to med school and still sit in on those classes and make use of the research uh, teachers that were created in that Harvard HST program. And that's what I did. I spent six months of my senior year with Tom McMahon, who was the head of applied physics at Harvard, which was really a special uh, six months of training and education from another extraordinarily gifted person that shared with me a lot of lessons that I've tried to pass along. Excellent, excellent. What would you say? What was what was the most difficult part of being at Harvard? Any challenges that that you particularly yeah. remember? Yeah, I think the thing that I thought thought very much uh, that came a little bit startling because you know at some level you think Boston, the cradle of freedom and liberty, the home of the Kennedys. Man, this is going to be a liberal 
wide open place where everybody has a great opportunity. I landed there in 1975 and that was the beginning of the busing in South Boston. And I've never seen so many fights, uh, racial out, you know, outbursts, even more so than I saw in Nashville, to be honest with you. And it became clear to me that uh, no part of the country or no person or no group owns racism or prejudice or misogyny or anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, that's part of the human DNA that we need to continue to try to extract with our own uh, teachings of CRISPR, CRISPR technology extract those terrible elements that are part of uh, man's humanity against man. Oscar Wilde said, man seeks to have psychological ascendancy over another man. And that's the nature of the human experience, whether it be a white guy trying to be better than another one. I learned about elitism there. So racism was present, but if you were from the elite Mayflower family or some Brahmin family that was rich or a New York patrician family, those folks looked down on not just black folks, they looked down on white folks that didn't have that background. So the, there was this other element of elitism that also that I had to understand, but it also allowed me to forge new relationships and that were transcultural, transethnic. I got to know and get to appreciate uh, the strength of friendships from multiple ethnic and racial groups. My as I tell kids now in my teachings around EDI or diversity inclusion, I say, look at the five-handed rule. If all of the closest people in your life, excluding family, are from the same racial, ethnic, or gender group, you've got work to do because to be part of a uh, uh, to be a part of the human experience, so that you can make certain that you let everybody have the best opportunity they can hand it, that they can have with you, you're going to have to be sensitive to and understand people who are different from you. And the only way to do that is to have intimate relationships. So you need to have more than zero on this hand. You need to have two or three people that are from different racial, ethnic, uh, geographic groups. And so I got that happened. That, that happened there in Boston. And uh, it really was an eye opening. It began my kind of thoughts around the importance of uh, diversity and inclusion as a tool uh, for racial and social justice. Uh, we had some great leaders in our med school class uh, who are ahead of us, the older med students like Woody Myers, who ran for governor this past year in Indianapolis and got beat. But Woody was three or four years ahead of me, and he was ahead of Ford Motor Company International, but came back to his home in Indianapolis to run for governor. And Woody was this great mentor for us, sharing the importance of us reaching back, supporting our younger colleagues and, and our high school colleagues and our college colleagues who are in HBCUs or others. And so there are a lot of great lessons learned outside of medicine there. Well, so did any of the racial elements spew into medicine for you? Yeah, it did. No question. Uh, a couple of things. We saw uh, at the time uh, this whole thing of Shockley and formal eugenics. Black folks just aren't smart enough to go to med school was coming out. And Bernie Davis wrote an article in the New England Journal, who was the chair of microbiology at the Harvard Med School and said that black folks are taking spots in at Harvard Med School class they shouldn't have. And we, we went to the dean of Harvard Med School and uh, said this was incorrect, you're gonna have to stand up. And a lot of our white faculty, uh, great Jewish faculty, other faculty members stood with us outside the, uh, the buildings, the main buildings on the Harvard campus with protest signs to say this, he is wrong. And, and, and we believe and support the power and value of a diverse class. And, and, and the whole idea of skull eugenic sizing and all that stuff uh, is incorrect, improper, uh, and has no basis in science, whether it be here at Harvard or any school. Yeah. Nice. Was, um, was Alvin Passant there back then? He was there. Poo, Poo was standing. 
Pooh is he's still there. Pooh is standing out front still with there? us in the signs. He was there. Wow, wow. That's yeah, I would put aside that. Boy, you talk about a longevity and a long career of social justice there, my friend. Yeah. So you leave Harvard, you come back down south to Emory. Um, so why Emory? What was, well, what was I, it about I applied Emory? to places that were cardi- cardiology, where the, cardio- where, the, where the programs were uh, led by leading cardiologists. I didn't apply okay. to any place where if it was a, if the, I, if the chair of medicine or the dean was an ID guy, I didn't, I didn't apply there. <laughs> uh, that's that's, so that's I, interesting. I, was, I knew from my research that the programs that had uh, chairmen who were cardiologists typically tipped the scales towards resources, towards cardiology. It's just the nature wow. of it. Still, still the same now, if you look at how departments of medicine are arranged, a little bit less so though. But you had these great people like uh, Sonnen Blake at Albert Einstein. You had Braunwald at the Brigham. You had Willis Hurst at uh, Emory. You had uh, Joe, uh, Joe, Joe Greenfield at Duke. So there were a number. There yeah. were places that had these I- iconic uh, folks who could pick up a phone and change your whole life because they knew everybody. And when I met Dr. Hurst and the, and the team that did the recruiting there, boy, it felt pretty felt pretty good. Um, and I was fortunate to match there. And, um, you know, he was, uh, he left us a few years ago, but no one again existed and led such a model life that led you into the way he thought, led you into uh, those kind of key things about teaching you about how to give a piece of yourself to every patient, uh, how it is important that every patient should be a friend of yours, uh, how you, and, 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 and that should then, uh, steal you and commit you to learn more, to deliver more. He said, it's you, you, you're all about knowing about how to know and how to care, Andre, as a, as a young physician. You have to do that equally. If you know a lot, but you don't translate that into great care, that is, that is intellectually bankrupt. If you care a lot, but you don't keep up with your literature and your knowledge, then that's morally bankrupt. And so the challenge, he says, is to uh, uh, even balance, to know and care at high proportionate and equal amounts. How, how about that as a lesson? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. That, yeah. That's, that's definitely amazing. So I'm really curious to know this. So you're down in Emory and you got Morehouse there. Even today, you hear a lot of stories about the racial tension and, and you know, how people, how different, how different residents are treated depending on what programs they, well, they come it, this, from. This, this is a cool story because when I became chief resident in 1984 that was the first year Morehouse students came to Grady to do their third year clerkships. And I was the person that stood at the door to welcome them in and to serve as the lead mentor for those students. And there was uh, you know, Wayne Riley was in that group. and uh, oh, I just, I just, just interviewed him last week. Yeah, Wayne and Charlene were, you know, Charlene was a year ahead of Wayne, so I saw Charlene first. And uh, so that was a really exciting year for me. So to be a chief resident, to see take morning report, all the admissions, uh, I think I took one week off that entire year uh, to be there all hours of the night, uh, to work with the young African-American residents uh, who were uh, students that were coming from Morehouse that blended in with our African-American uh, uh, Emory re- uh, students and residents, um, and to and for them to see my overt and clear commitment to them. As a matter of fact, I won 
uh, was given an honorary uh, student uh, award uh, by the Morehouse students, honorary class member. I walked with them during their graduation. That class, that first class that came through, I, I walked with them dur during their graduation. So that, that's a very special thing. I think, you know, uh, medicine has politics in it and, uh, and those things have to be sorted out. I, I think the thing that's been really useful here at Vanderbilt was when we formed the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance 17 years ago, the people that formed that, the leaders on both sides of the street acknowledged the value that each of the other, each of what they brought. They're, 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 what Meharry brought, the Vanderbilt leaders understood. What Vanderbilt brought, Meharry leaders understood they didn't have. So you have the vision and moral justice of a primary based uh, African-American med school, HBCU med school, and a research level one university that's trying to push the envelope on molecular biology techniques and stuff to solve, to solve science. So now you bring those together under a conjoint program that's called the Alliance for now 18 years to look at the health disparities in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And it just turns out, praise the Lord, the leadership was uh, got along and they built the program in a way that both uh, schools have benefited to the extent that the CTSA award that Vanderbilt and the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance wins is considered the model. Uh, they sit on the board for new CTSAs that the NIH is, is reviewing. Oh, wow. Uh, because you'd want to have some uh, African-American or a minority-serving institution involved at the table with a research-level university. And, uh, I mean, there are over a couple of hundred health disparities research projects or uh, translation projects translation met around Nashville within a two-hour radius that are funded by the Harry Vanderbilt Alliance's CTSA from the NIH. So. Uh -huh. So um, I know I, I know I don't want to keep you too long, but there are a few things that I'm really really interested in about. Before I get to those few things, which which will deal with your brother somewhat, um, I'm curious to know why was it cardiology though? What what was it about cardiology? Can you pause for a hot sec? We'll be right back. I want them bad like a daddy, yeah. Only do it like flogger, yeah. I'm kicking flavor, no saga, yeah. Ayy, I like them blues. I might go Janet like Jackson. I got the margin, yeah. It's all about progression. Life is like a blessing. Everything a win, loss is like a lesson. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Ain't no time for stressing. All right, so something we, we haven't gotten to, which is really cool, is like you mentioned, there's three of you, three yeah. brothers, all, you know, black men, of course doctors not just that but y'all have all done very well yeah. very well and i understand the influence of your dad but what was the secret sauce beyond that yeah i i think i've chatted about it a little bit but the key is the uh dad made the case that no matter what career path you take or what degree you're going for it has to be informed by the humanities he was an art uh and history he was an art uh, English major, double major. So his point was, is that you, no matter what your primary lens is, Andre, whether it be a physician or a business person, it has to be viewed through the arts and humanities because they will soften the lens, but more importantly, they'll bring you a broader expanse of the human experience. They'll bring you the uh, human experience through sculpture, through art through the ages, through music for, through the ages, whether it be jazz and its initial components up to monk. He said they will, these areas will offer your creative brain, the right brain, opportunities to inform your left brain, your more deterministic daytime thinking brain. It will create opportunities for creativity and innovation and broader ways to look at problems 
that your colleagues won't have, but you have to really work it. And that's the message he gave me. And I passed it on to my younger brothers who actually picked it up and dad would continue the inculcation. What I think the secret sauce that may have helped us was that, well, I don't know, this is probably genetic. We, I'm a lefty. And so I, um, I draw, I sketch, I write. So the, I, the, my, my clothing is a Alexander Calder mobile. So I view uh, a man's dress or men's dress or woman's dress as a form of art, moving art. And so I do a lot of sketching and artwork. If you look behind me, there's a sketch of John F. Kennedy. That's mine. Oh, wow. Nice. And there are sketches on the wall there. There's my wife. And there are sketches of my father at various ages hanging on the wall. And I carry with me, as my brothers do, kind of a notebook. They can draw and sketch, too. And that stuff, as I draw and sketch and I write down problems I'm facing in the day, there is some type of synapses. And this science has pointed it out that the creativity helps generate synapses to help you think about more common problems uh, that gives you some ins gives you additional insight. So I would say that uh, that I think if I were to, and I do, inculcate messages of instruction uh, that can that can that can make you better, make you think in more innovative, more expansive ways. Deal with deal with humanities. Look to yourself in terms of what are those things that you have passion for outside of medicine, whether it be art or music. My brother's the Keith, who's at Yale, is the president of Yale. He was a cardiologist like me. He went to Harvard College, WashU Med School and trained in Emory in cardiology. And he went off, he was here with me for a while, but he's off president of Yale New Haven Hospital. He loves opera and symphonic music. I think he's the president of the Yale New Haven Symphony. And, and he's had a chance to conduct Stars and Stripes Forever on stage with the <laughs> symphony. Kevin does artworks, beautiful sketches of mom and dad over the ages in his home. And so I, I would say that something that we don't, uh, I think we're slowly understanding it. The book by Walter Isaacson on Leonardo da Vinci a few years ago was a bestseller, really helped. We knew the interests and thoughts around how right and left brain are truly connected to the corpus callosum for a real reason. And, and the reason is they inform each other's activities. Nice, nice. Now, fun question um, to wrap it up. Two fun questions. Um, since you're you know, such a fashionable gentleman, it's a funny question, but just for fun, if you could be one piece of attire, one piece of clothing, what would that piece be and why? Wow. Probably the tie, because the tie offers the, the, the cherry on top of the outfit if done properly. It, 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 bring, it harmonizes the whole assemblage. So like today, you see me with a, a tweed, bur deep burgundy windowpane suit with kind of a brownish orange windowpane. I think that's a gourmet fabric. I have a contrasting blue snap collar, but the tie picks up and accents the colors in the suit, okay? And so the tie to me is a uniforming thing. I think as people wear ties less, I would say the socks could be the uniforming element, okay? So with the socks, they're orange. <laughs> and they pick up the tie and pick up the, the orange or uh, dark brown window pane in the jacket. Uh, the key on all of this is that it needs to have what the Italians call spes spesorasto, that kind of spontaneous element 
that it just kind of happened. Uh, if it looks like you spent all morning trying to get the points on the collar of your pocket square absolutely perfect, you've screwed up. It needs to be a bit uneven. It needs to look like you just kind of plopped it in there. Okay. And wow. so uh, it's those aspects of, and that's the creativity part, right? That's the creativity part. Amazing. Amazing. I really appreciate it. So, um, man, I'm gonna have to get you back some other time to dig Absolutely. in. We've got so much information. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the last word, of course, but I would love for you to end it with, my name is Dr. Andre Churchwell and I'm a black man in a white coat. Absolutely. So I'm a, I'm a native African-American born in Nashville, Tennessee during the civil rights movement in Meharry Hubbard Hospital. I would not be here if uh, W. Perry Crump, the chair of pediatrics at, at Meharry Hubbard Hospital had not been the most phenomenal pediatrician in this city because I inhaled energine, swallowed energine as a small child thinking it was a pups drink and it aspirated into my lungs. Dale, you're a, uh, EMT doc, that's actually uh, ethylene glycol. And uh, I got lipoid pneumonia. He hydrated the heck out of me. I was probably four years old, uh, emptied my stomach out, put me in an oxygen tent and hydrated my kidneys, uh, flushed them with some 100% alcohol solution IV, because as you know, ethylene glycol competes for the alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme. And if it's converted, uh, in the liver, it's converted to acid, which is toxic. It's you get a high anide gap metabolic acidosis and die. E. Perry Crump stayed in the hospital for five days and saved my life, and I would not be here. So I'm a black man in a white coat. Praise God, Chairman, legendary Chairman of Pediatrics at Meharry Medical School, Dr. E. Perry Crump was a white man in a black coat. Amen. Amen. I'm on them band like a dad, yeah. Only do it like flogger, yeah. I'm kicking flame with no saga, yeah. Ayy, I like them blues. I might go Janet like Jackson. I got them options, yeah. It's all about progression. Life is like a blessing. Everything a win, loss is like a lesson. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, ain't no time for stressing. I've been really stepping. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, if you wanna go get it, stop playing around. Really got on racks, ain't playing around.